Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. Welcome back to Stimulate Your Mind, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Zainab Murad. Zainab Murad has done her PhD in how neoliberalism and Islamophobia shaped the schooling experiences of Arab Muslim primary students in southwestern Sydney schools. Thank you very much for joining us today, Zainab. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your educational background and your upbringing? Yeah, so in terms of my upbringing, um, I was born in Australia. I was raised in Lebanon. I went to Lebanon when I was about nine years old and then I came back to Australia for my, uh, for my last year or so of high school and I completed year 12 here in Australia and then I went on to uni. So in regards to my educational background, I studied art and then I did a teaching degree and became a teacher and started teaching mainstream classes at my local primary school. And right after that, um, while I was teaching, I started a Master of Education course at Sydney University. So while I was teaching in my first year out, um, a position came up at the school I was at for an Arabic community language teacher. So I went and I got my accreditation to teach Arabic with the Department of Education and I applied for that position and I got it. So really working in that position um, is what encouraged me to do a PhD. When I started teaching Arabic, um, I faced a lot of challenges with the students that I didn't face when I was teaching mainstream. I had just started my teaching career at the time. So in the Arabic classes, I had all sorts of issues in terms of behavior management, and it was challenging at first. Um, so at the school I was at, I'd have, I'd have staff coming to me and saying, um, you've got the hardest job in the school. You have all the Arabic kids in one class. Um, and I really didn't go to primary school in Australia. So I didn't know what I was up for teaching community languages. Yes. So based on those teaching experiences and the comments from my colleagues, I started to read about why Arabic language background students are the way they are, why they're challenging to teach whereas other community groups are not. So the other language teachers at the school didn't have behaviour management problems like I did and the other students from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds didn't have the same reputation as the Arabic kids did. So and here when I say Arabic kids, um, I mean Muslim majority kids as well. Yep. So I started to read about the research on the Arabic students and most of what I found really just looked at um, in-school factors or educational outcomes. Um, and I really wasn't finding any answers as to why uh, Arabic students are challenging compared to other culturally and linguistically diverse students and why they had this reputation for a long time. So it wasn't new. Um, so by then I had finished my master's in uh, education and I thought I'll do a PhD on this topic. So um, I wanted to look at the education of Arab Muslim students in Australia uh, to see or to understand the challenges they face in their schooling. So that's why I did the PhD uh, for professional reasons on a personal level um, as an Australian Lebanese mother. I wanted to learn about the dynamics that influence the education to really enhance the educational experiences. Um, so that's uh, so I had the bachelor uh, in teaching and I had um, the master's in education and that's what my PhD was about. Perfect. And you said that your experiences as a teacher teaching these Arab Muslim students was what basically inspired you to begin researching this topic. But what else was a driving that's force right. for you? 
Um, really, I just really wanted to, um, there's not a lot of literature on this. There's not a lot of research. Um, I, I think across several schools where, uh, or several schools that are highly concentrated in Arab Muslim, with Arab Muslim students, they always have that reputation, but really there's no answers as to why. They just really blame the students, you know, for being the way they are. Um, so I really wanted to find out. So when, you know, people ask me, uh, you know, they say, well, these students are challenging. I would know why. And I have contributed basically to enhancing their education. So that's really what I wanted to achieve out of the PhD. So what I did was um, I read up a proposal and I read a research plan of what I what it is that I want to research, basically um, a lot of what I've just said. And I sent it to uh, academics at Western Sydney University. And uh, a few months after that, I started my PhD and I thought I'll do it within the sociology of education. So not just looking at what the literature has already said, you know, in school factors, you know, uh, relationships with teachers, um, the educational outcomes, things like that, that weren't really providing any answers. Um, I thought this was a different approach. So um, that's why I did it within sociology. So the reason the sociological perspective, really, it just looks at factors beyond the school level. So uh, schools, they don't really operate in isolation of what goes on around them. So a lot of, um, so students in schools aren't the way they are just because of, um, you know, what's going on inside the school. The school is part of a community and a wider society. And that's really what I was interested in looking at um, when I looked at the schooling of Arab Muslim students. So when you adopt a sociological approach to an educational study, so you look, you start to look at things like social structures, power, culture, political organization of knowledge, you know, the causes and consequences of social inequality, discrimination, social and a socially just education. So those are the themes that I really wanted to explore. Really, it just started with a seed and then um, with these ideas in mind, it grew from there. And you looked at how neoliberalism impacted the experiences of these students. So what is the difference between neoliberalism and capitalism? Um, okay. Neoliberalism and capitalism. So they're two different things. Um, just before I get into that, I'll just give a quick overview of um, the approach I adopted. So then you understand why I looked at neoliberalism and really uh, what role it has in the study. Perfect. So the approach um, that I adopted in my research uh, in sociology so I, it's what I said about taking, uh, looking at the school as part of community and society, I looked at um, several levels um, uh, we call them in sociology the macro, meso, and micro. So what are they? The macro looks at um, the wider society. So here we take into consideration systemic issues or structural issues that operate at the level of society. That's when I talked about neoliberalism and Islamophobia. So they were the two systemic issues that I looked at. Why neoliberalism in particular? Um, because I think it's an ideology that dominates our lives, and I think uh, it's also at the root of a lot of problems that we have in society. Definitely. I'll talk about this a bit uh, later as well. Um, the second is the MISO level. So the MISO level, that looks at policy. So in the wider society, you have, you know, the overall socioeconomic political environment. And then you have these, and then you have, you know, policies that emerge as a result of this socio-political environment. That's what we call the MISO. And here what I did was I looked at policies that relate to Muslim students. So in Australia um, and across the West, we have de-radicalization policies. We have policies about counter countering violent extremism and equity policies. 
they were the ones specific to Muslim students. So I, I gave an overview of those. Um, that's at the policy level. And then the last one is what we call the micro. And the micro looks at the level of the individual. So for my study at the individual level, I interviewed students, parents and teachers to see how those wider societal and institutional factors that operate at the MISO um, and the macro levels shaped or influenced their experiences of schooling. So those were the three levels. Yeah, so um, so you were asking me about neoliberalism and capitalism. Yeah, the difference between um, the two. So, yeah, so I think um, I think they're two different things. So you can't say what is the difference. Maybe you can say, well, what is the difference between liberalism and neoliberalism? But what I'll do um, to explain neoliberalism, because I don't know, it's it's a bit complex. Um, yep. Anyone you ask when you tell them to explain neoliberalism, it's a very complicated topic. So what I'll do is I'll just um, kind of explain how I understand capitalism, and then that will lead me to explaining what neoliberalism. Sounds okay, good. so I'll begin by talking about what capitalism is and then I'll talk about neoliberalism. Let's do it. Okay, so I think my understanding, okay, capitalism, let's start with that. Um, also, just before I, uh, just a little footnote here is that when I, um, in my explanation, I think this is a very Eurocentric perspective because this is um, the literature that I've looked at. So I think capitalism, it's an economic system based on the accumulation of capital. That is just a very simple um, definition of it. So some features of it are free markets, private ownership of machinery, land and tools, a focus on profit and people working for wages. That's just a broad definition, but what is the core of capitalism? Um, the simplest uh, explanation that I've seen it has been um, by an individual called Oliver Leonard. So I'll just go over how he explains it because I just think this is really uh, a simple understanding of it. Um, let's just say you as an individual, you have some money. So you invest that money in buying some wood and employing some laborers. The laborers put their time and labor into the wood and they increase its value by carving it out into furniture. So because it's now increased in value, you as the owner can sell it for a profit. So you keep the profit for yourself rather than give it to the people who worked on it to increase its value. So what you do um, is you pay them in wages for their work and the wages are always less um, than the amount of the profit that you'll make. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. So um, the yep. money that you invested at the beginning of this process, that's called capital. Okay. And then in that way, you become a capitalist. So this process or this relationship, we call it the investment. Okay. That's that capital that you had, the wage labor and the profit. That's the essence of capitalism. So that's just a, basically, I think a brief way to understand it. But really in reality, we know that it's much more complex than that. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, so in that example, um, Leonard, he asks questions. He says, well, okay, fine. We understand that relationship, but you know, where did you get your capital from in the first place? Did you inherit it? Did you win it? You know, did you steal it? Where did you get it from? Where are your workers from? Are they locals? Are they migrants? Are they black? Are they white? Are they female? Are they male? What age are they? Why did they work for you and not another capitalist? Um, where was the wood from? Was it sustainably sourced? Are there other wooden furniture factories in the city where you're at? 
So the answer for each of these questions could be different. So that really shows the complexity of it. Um, so capitalism is that investment, wage, wage, labor, and profit relationship. But taking into consideration all those, you know, the answers to all those questions, and I think if you also bring in other factors like you know colonization and slavery into to the mix, that's kind of like how you understand how capitalism works. And like I said, it's a bit um, of a Eurocentric perspective. Um, you know, before capitalism, we had feudalism. Um, that was a different social and economic system. Other societal systems now that we hear a lot are socialism, communism, and we have an Islamic system as well. Not, not really talked about a lot in the West, um, but you can read about it in our literature. Yeah, so it's just really like a social economic system, basically. That's my understanding, where capital um, is at its core. So that's what capitalism is. Did you want me to go on to talk about what neoliberalism is? Neoliberalism, yeah. Okay. So the the thing with capitalism is, so you can be a capitalist, okay, but you can't really be, you can be a capitalist, but you don't have to be a neoliberal. But if you're a neoliberal, um, you're a capitalist, if that makes sense. I'll explain what I mean. So um, the way I understand neoliberalism is um, it's the way in which capitalism operates in this period of post-modernity that we live in. So in our day and age, neoliberalism is the way that capitalism works in our society. I'll, I'll, to understand it, I'll just look at the history of it. Um, I'll start from the 1980s. It really didn't start in the 1980s, it started before, but basically you just need to know the roots of it and then we'll understand how it works in our society today. Perfect. And then I'll explain how this relates to my study because you're probably thinking now, well, what does this have to do with the schooling of Muslim students? Okay, so um, so let's look at the how it started. So in 1970s, it started in the UK. At the time in the UK, there were lots of questions about, you know, the welfare state. People were um, questioning what they wanted the government to achieve, who held the balance of power. So at that time, Keynesian policies began to fall apart. So they were kind of the economic policies that were put into place and neoliberal ideas began to enter the mainstream. So in 1979, in the UK, there was a general election and it was won by Margaret Thatcher. She was the first UK female prime minister and she led the, she led the Conservative Party. So at the time, um, Thatcher's government planned on radical social change and they did this by implementing dramatic social and economic policies. So the people who did this were called um, Thatcherites and the movement was Thatcherism. And what they did was they began by privatisation. Okay, so I think that's a key feature of neoliberalism, privatization. So the Thatcherites believe that governments should not own businesses, that they should start, so they shouldn't own businesses, so they started selling them off. So public services were privatized. So what they did was they delegated or sold off all of the country's organizations and industries off to the private sector. So gas, energy, water, the railways, health, education, roads, even prisons. These were all under, you know, operated by the government. They sold them off to private enterprise. So they were privately owned. And in addition to privatization, what they did was, um, you know, massive tax cuts for the rich, um, they uh, crashing of trade unions because they thought they were making too many demands on workers' rights and workers' pay, deregulations for corporations, free markets, outsourcing, competition in public services, minimal government intervention in business. Um, So they were some of the features of, um, you know, that was some of the things that they were doing, the Thatcherites were doing at the time. 
So it started in the UK and then this policy reform, it took off in other parts of the world. So in the US under Ronald Reagan, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and then it started to um, take place across Europe. So what we uh, started to see at the time was economic restructuring. So in the UK, a lot of organizations were not helped during that transition period. Um, so during the privatization, um, during the movement to privatization, a lot of them went bankrupt. They had to lay off a lot of workers. And for some heavy industries, Thatcher wanted to, off uh, to offload those and import, um, import from abroad. So this was the case for like coal mines, steel manufacturing and others. And as a result of these policies that she was putting into place, um, there were significant increases in unemployment in the 1980s and that pushed a lot of people into poverty. So we started to see the ramifications of this, um, uh, you know, this policy of privatization. She also reduced the welfare budget. So what she did was she kind of changed social attitudes by saying, well, welfare recipients um, are lazy or undeserving. And, you know, we hear a lot about this here in Australia. But really the problem was that if unemployment was so high because of this, you know, privatization and the lack of support for it, it was hard to find work. Um, it wasn't that the people were lazy or reckless, but it was kind of like um, discussed that way. So the economic restructuring caused a lot of social problems. Um, the re and research has consistently shown that um, if government doesn't provide, you know, security net or employment opportunities, crime increases. The only thing was it wasn't discussed that way. It was always your fault if you couldn't find work. So neoliberalism, um, in my understanding, is that political economic ideology of capitalism. So capital, as I explained before, it's at its core. You know, they say it's all about the money. Yep. And today um, we see the legacy of those policies that Margaret Thatcher put into place um, in our society. And it's really now how society functions. So we keep moving away from this idea of the welfare state that looks after its citizens. And really citizens are no longer seen as citizens. They're seen as consumers now because of how far um, it's come, how far neoliberalism has come. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I said it's at the root of all our problems. So um, how's that? I think like that example I gave before about um, the unemployment rates and how they're always um, marketed as, you know, at the fault of the individual. But really under neoliberal um, policies, there are lots of problems. So, um, you know, as a result of these policies, the rich get richer and the gap between the rich um, and the poor in society increases. I think it's not that bad for us in Australia if you compare with us with the UK, but it's still prevalent. Um, the rich persuade themselves that they've acquired their wealth through merit, ignoring the advantages such as, you know, education, inheritance and class that may have helped them in the beginning to secure their wealth. The poor, they blame themselves for their failures. So even when they can do little to change, um, you know, they can do little to change their circumstances. Really, their circumstances are beyond their control. So there's not much really that they can do. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher always said, there's no such thing as a society. It's really about you. It's always about you. There are individual, individual. men and women. Yep. And the reason really that's problematic is because theories of social reproduction, this is a bit of like left-wing thinking, tell us that um, capital is passed from generation to generation and it keeps people in the same social class as their parents before them. So you've got things like economic, cultural, human and social capital. And if you're born into, you know, a privileged family that have, um, you know, these, this capital, you know, not everyone 
is born in, into privilege. So it kind of just reproduces itself. That's the way our societies work. So neoliberalism, like I said, it just places everything on the individual. It's, you know, it's your fault if you're unemployed, you're uneducated. It doesn't take into account wider structural factors that inf- impact the individual. Yeah, so I think that's, I don't know if it's a bit, it's a bit much, but really that's, that's what neoliberalism is. Um, so going back to that example I gave at the beginning about the individual who invests his money in wood. So just to kind of explain what yeah. I just said, if you come from a privileged background and you have that capital, you know, you might have inherited that money to go buy that wood. It's easy for you to um, keep multiplying it, hiring people, paying them wages, wages that will cover, you know, just their basic expenses. Um, so you'll keep on multiplying your capital while they'll be just, you know, um, with the wages that you pay them, they just make ends meet. Um, but they're really the ones who are increasing the value of your investment in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So you you touched on this a, a bit, but what what are some of the social byproducts of neoliberalism? The social byproducts of neoliberalism. So I really looked at it in relation to the schooling of Muslim kids. Okay, so how does neoliberalism and everything that I've just talked about, um, you know, the economic and social policies, how do they relate to the schooling of Muslim kids? That's yeah. the area that I've explored. So um, so neoliberalism really it relates to my study in two ways. First of all, it um, it influences Islamophobia. I'll talk about that a bit later. But it also neoliberalism influences education as a social institution. So, like I said before, it um, uh, it does so through privatization. I'll tell you what that means. So, with schools, Thatcher brought neoliberalism. She said what she did was she brought really consumerism into education. And this has continued uh, today across the globe. So it comes under the guise of school choice. Really what this means is that schools, um, they become shaped by market agenda. So we see this in the curriculum in terms of the imperial knowledge. We see it through standardized testing through the, and really through the notion of choice. So rather than have these schools that are meant to operate off, it's meant to operate as, you know, um, to society's equalizer where all students have access um, you know, you have the middle class students going to the private schools and then you have, um, you know, the working class students whose parents can't afford them, can't afford to put them in private schools going to the public schools. You have the private schools, you know, they're very well resourced. To have, they have the best teachers. And then um, working class parents have to put their kids in the public system, you know, under-resourced. Um, and there are a whole other range of factors that, um, you know, that you know are problematic in the public system so it kind of like just creates that gap um the problem with neoliberalism in education is that every aspect of education it becomes subjected to those market metrics and really social personal and emotional aspects of schooling they become neglected or they become reframed or to be aligned with economic imperatives so, like I said, um, education's progressive function or as an institution that operates as a democratizing force by providing young people with, you know, critical thinking skills that becomes compromised. So what I did was I discussed um, education by what we call an ideological state apparatus by looking at these ideas. I said, well, we have, you know, we have these ideas, we have, we live in this capitalist society. Um, it runs, through, uh, we have this neoliberal ideology operating and then 
really schools are just an apparatus that kind of bring this, uh, you know, this ideology of the state in, um, into education. You're not, we're not really looking at, um, it's not really a, you know, like I said, a kind of democratizing force. It's really just, um, you know, it's all about um, economic imperatives of schooling. So is it feeding that ideology into the students through education? Um, it does. It's not very obvious because it, it's so ingrained in the way that it works. Um, but uh, it, it is. So through the curriculum, you know, any anyone you'd speak to will tell you how overcrowded the curriculum is. There's not enough time, you know, to really for, for deep learning or, you know, teaching critical thinking skills. It's all about just getting through, you know, the literacy and the numeracy and making sure that, you know, the kids have all these skills by the time they graduate so they can, you know, contribute to the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, that's not completely negative, but when you want to have, you know, when you want the kids or the students to learn, you know, how to think critically, how to, you know, question power dynamics in society, really, if if the the curriculum is shaped by these um, economic imperatives, you're not going to achieve that, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So um, in my study, I think I did find that, but it wasn't really obvious because it's just so ingrained in the way that things work that you don't really question it. Yeah, I'll talk about that if you want when I get to my findings. But yeah. really, um, I looked at also Islamophobia and neoliberalism. So when I in my findings, um, a lot of people talked really about Islamophobia because they they had experienced the ramifications of that. Um, whereas neoliberalism, really, it's like I said, it's just so ingrained that you don't realize that it's, it shapes everything that you do but you're not aware of it because it's just normal. That's how things work. So you're living neoliberalism. Kind of. Yeah. If you want to say that, yeah, you're, you're living. Um, it's just that the underpinnings of neoliberalism. So everything, you know, everything's shaped by economic imperatives. That's how our society functions. And that's what's, um, that's how schools function. And that's, um, really what's happening. And it's just, it filters through different streams, but, um, into schools. Um, but it's just the way that they are that you don't really say, you don't really um, question it much, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Islamophobia, on the other hand, that's a different story. So I'll, I'll tell you about how I looked at Islamophobia. So in my research, I didn't really talk about Islamophobia in the sense of um, what it is, but about the politics of it or how it operates to produce unequal power relations in society. So, you know, there's a lot of literature that says um, Islamophobia manifests in society through racism, through Islamophobic depictions of Muslims and Islam. You know, Islam is backward. Muslims are prone to terrorism, engaged in oppression. Islam is anti-democratic, violent. You know, we've heard this yeah. so much. I was really more interested in the politics of these discourses. So um, what I did was in my uh, thesis was I traced the history of Islamophobia mainly starting in the 1980s, you know, even though it existed before that, you know, um, it, we know we know that Islamophobia existed. Since the beginning in, of Islam. So. Since the beginning of Islam, it's very explicit in the Quran, yeah. you know. But really what I did, because it really to relate to my study, I looked at it from the 1980s um, and mainly just in the West, even though it also exists beyond the West. So what I did was I discussed the demise of the communist threat in the West. So following the collapse of the Soviet Union and then how Islam at that time became the ideological other to the West. And I discussed, um, I discussed that and how um, I discussed how that occurred um, in relation to you, um, the United States as a global hegemon. Okay. So I talked about the Soviet Union and communist ideology 
which were portrayed throughout the capitalist West as the evil empire that threatened, you know, Western freedoms and free enterprise. Um, so then when they were no longer a threat, Islam came. And then really I discussed the politics of constructing Islam as the threat to the West and Western freedoms. And here I started by beginning, uh, sorry, I started by citing um, all the events that started to happen. So, you know, so we had the oil shocks in the 1970s, moving on to the Islamic revolution of Iran, where American hostages were hurled, um, and a series of events all the way up to 9-11. And then I discussed how all these events were depicted in the West to create this idea of this big, you know, ideological threat to freedom in the West. And then, um, you know, when you got, when you get to 9-11, that's when it was completely amplified. So um, in relation to neoliberalism and Islamophobia, I discussed how neoliberalism is linked to imperialism and how it's expansionist. So remember how I talked about before um, the idea of turning public services into um, private sectors or industry privatization yeah that's right so neoliberalism it doesn't stop there you know when um, it doesn't stop there what it does is it's always on the hunt for new markets so that's when i talk about um, the relationship between islamophobia and neoliberalism so here i talk about the relationship between the u.s's neoliberal hegemonic expansion um, that occurred through the invasion of iraq and afghanistan you know given Iraq's oil reserves and Afghanistan's strategic position relative to Central Asia, South Asia and the Middle East for the pipeline projects. So really under the umbrella of, you know, the war on terror, these invasions opened up new markets for U.S. companies as part of um, the eco-political ambitions of the the U.S. under that um, neoliberal expansion, really to strengthen their hegemony and control across the globe. And um, then I link this to the demonization of Islam in the West and what I mentioned above about the politics of Islamophobia. So when I talked about Islamophobia and um, neoliberalism, those were the structural factors. Those were what I said before, we call them the um, macro, the things that are the wider, the wider societal things happening across the globe. But, you know, due to globalization, they're also relevant in the Australian context as well. So if, if we take just a, a quick look at the U.S.'s influence on Islamophobia, was it a, a way of pushing their hegemony? Yeah, it was. So they do it through two ways. Um, they do it through two ways. So we call, we call uh, so there's a soft power and there's a hard power. So the hard power is um, through, you know, military intervention. So like I said before, we had the, you know, the invasion of Iraq. Through soft power, they do it differently. So, you know, before they're able to go and invade Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere, they kind of need the public support. They need that. a reason to. That's right. So, you know, under it all came under that idea of, um, you know, Western freedom. Um, there are uh, um, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So basically, like I said, uh, Islam is the ideological other and they're a threat to the West. Um, so that's uh, so what they do. They, so if you kind of trace the discourse on that, you see what, you know, what George Bush said. He was very explicit about it, um, talking about Western freedom and the threat from Islam. They kind of, to get the public support to, to you know, invade these countries, they kind of um, mask it that way. And that's what we call like the soft power. So it's really just, you know, altering the minds and hearts of people. 
Okay. And then once that's achieved, then you go, you know, to the military, the hard power. That's when, you know, um, when, when invasions happen, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. So now delving into Islamophobia, what were your findings yeah. of Islamophobia in schools and is it common? Yeah. So what I did was my study was a case study. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, like a statistical study to say, well, yes, you know, um, it's prevalent. I just looked at a few schools. I went to a few schools and I did, um, interviews. So it was prevalent. Um, if you like, I'll talk about a bit of the MISO. So remember how I said there are three levels, the yep. structural, that was the macro, then the MISO. I'll just tell you a bit about how it works in policy just to, before I get to the individual level to talk about what the, um, you know, the parents, the teachers and the kids said. Um, yeah, so the MISO looks at the level of policy, like I said, and I looked at two policies. There was the prevent policy that's in the UK and in Australia we have a policy called the Living Safe Together policy. They're both de-radicalization and countering violent extremism policies. So what I did was I talked about how, you know, Islamophobia is inscribed in institutional structures and I looked at schools. So what happened in, so what happened in Australia was the Department of Home Affairs rolled out this Living Safe Together initiative in 2014 and it was part of a $630 million counter-terrorism package. The way that these policies work in schools was um, – or well, the way I talked about it was that there were forms of power domination. So teachers become security officials. They're always on the hunt for radicalization of yep. Muslim kids. And that's in an, env an environment that, um, you know, being Muslim is, you know, automatically seen as being a fundamentalist or terrorist. So um, there isn't a lot of literature that talks about how these um, policies operate in the Australian context. Um, especially with primary kids. That's who I did my research with. But in the UK, there is a lot, and you hear a lot about it in the news. So, for example, you know, a teacher in Canberra, she referred her Muslim student to the police because she she believed he was at risk of radicalization because he wrote an essay on Muslim terrorists and Western intervention. Another example um, was an eight-year-old who... Um, an eight-year-old from Sydney, from Sydney South, who was referred to the principal because he carried a backpack, a backpack across his chest and accused a classmate of mentioning, uh, and, and he was accused by a classmate that, um, that he was carrying a bomb. Um, so basically, once you have these wider ideas in society, um, anything that a teacher might see in the classroom, she automatically thinks that, um, you know. Uh, this is a case of extremism, radicalization. That's right. Um, and in the UK, it's, in the UK it's, it's worse than here. So, you know, um, kids have been referred to the police because they said words like Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar. Um, one child in kindergarten was drawing, some, was drawing something. The teacher said, what are you drawing? He said, a cooker bomb. So he really meant cucumber. Yeah. Um, he just didn't know how to pronounce it. So, um, yeah, so he was referred to the police. Um, other students have been referred to um, the police um, for writing essays on Palestinian rights. But what I did in my research was I looked about at, at how the reporting um, demonstrates how Muslim students are really seen to be potential terrorists. They're hidden in plain sight and they're guilty until they're proven innocent. And it's really the role of the teacher to uncover this security risk at school. So that was the MISO level. So in terms of the micro level, that um, brings me to what you were saying, um, the level of the individual. 
Um, so in my research, to understand how Islamophobia operates in schools um, and neoliberalism as well, I uh, interviewed parents, teachers and students. With the students, I did focus groups. Um, with the teachers and parents, I just did individual interviews. Um, I went to private schools and public schools in southwest Sydney. Okay, so is Islamophobia prevalent in schools? So what I did was with the teachers, I looked at the way through which they reproduced Islamophobic discourse, the wider things in society, through their pedagogical practices. So basically through how they teach. So with the teachers, um, some of the teachers told me how they wanted to teach Muslim, um, Muslim students Australian things like swimming and sports. And um, the way I understood that was um, they were kind of drawing on these notions of assimilation. So going back to Australia in the 1960s, I think, because we came out with this policy of assimilation. Assimilation, yeah. Yeah, so that's different to integration. Assimilation means that you need to let go of your culture and adopt the culture of your host society. And I found that the teachers, you know, they had good intentions, but that's what they were trying to do with the kids. They were trying to say, um, you know, let go of your culture. You need to learn, you know, these modern things, you know, Australian aspects of culture. So there were lots of examples that they talked about. Another example was um, one of the teachers told me, uh, she was talking about her colleague and she said, well, so there were a bunch of students praying in the play playground at lunchtime and I told them that they're not allowed to pray because it's a safety risk um, and she didn't provide them with an alternative place to pray. So here you have, you know, a small group of kids in the playground at lunchtime praying and then the teacher saying, no, you can't play, you know, the ball might hit you or, you, you know, something might happen. Yep. Really, instead of just moving them to somewhere else in the school, telling, you know, go use this classroom or whatever. Like when I, when I started hearing examples like this, I really just showed how what's happening in schools echoes what's happening in the wider society. So in Australia, we hear so much about um, uh, how they – plan to ban mosque development or school development. Um, how, you know, it's always, it always comes after that, that concern of safety or, yeah. um, you know, too much traffic or whatever, but really um, they just want to ban any physical presence of Muslimness or Islam. So that's what happened. So it happens in the wider society. And then it filters through to the school level in these really discrete ways. So I think w once I showed that, I kind of like drew some links between the wider society and, um, you know, the individual level, if that makes sense. Um, there were other examples as well. So um, one teacher told me about how, uh, you know, they were decorating the, the school for Christmas and then um, a student came and said, Miss, I wish we can celebrate AIDS like we celebrate Christmas at school. Mind you, this was a school that had 80% Muslim majority students. But there were no, um, they didn't celebrate aid, even though, you know, the Department of Education acknowledges it, you know, on their calendar and on their website and et cetera. So really, like I said before, they're just trying to not ban, but just trying to eliminate any presence of Muslimness on school grounds. So could it be uh, categorized as uh, systemic Islamophobia? Kind of, yeah. So it is institutionalized because it's happening through the schools. Um, but the thing is that we see it happening through the pedagogical practices of teachers. You know, it's so it's really um, in the hands of the teachers because there were it wasn't all negative. I mean, there were a lot of good things that were happening in schools, but really it was always done by the Muslim teachers. It wasn't done by anybody else. So 
for example, um, one of the teachers told me how she organized um, she organized a, pr- a prayer group in Ramadan. So all the students in Ramadan would meet, you know, in her classroom. They'll pray Jamaa. But there were these sorts of initiatives happening in school, but it was always the role of the teacher. There was no support from the school or from the department for these to occur. But like I said, my study was just a case study. So I only went to a few schools and I, only, I, I did about, um, with the teachers, I did about 10 interviews. So, so basically what I found was that these wider practices in society filter through to the school setting um, and they, um, they filter through, through the practices of teachers, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's really up to the teachers about, you know, if they're going, how, how they're reproducing them or how they're um, resisting them, if that makes sense, how they're resisting Islamophobia. Yeah, so that was the teachers. Um, I also did interviews with parents. Um, really with parents, what I talked about was um, – why they chose to put their child in that particular school. So like I said, um, so under neoliberalism, you know, schools are privatised and then you're given so much choice. So, you know, do you want your child to go to a public school? Do you want him to go to a Catholic school? Do you want him to go to a private Islamic school? Um, or, you know, there's a whole um, range of schools that you can choose your child to put, you can choose to put your child in. And um, what I did with the parents was I asked them, well, why did you choose a public school? Why did you choose an Islamic school? Um, a lot of, I, ha- I had a range of responses. Um, I interviewed about nine parents at the time um, from across three schools. And um, so some parents told me, well, I want my child to learn about Islam. And, um, you know, if I put them in an Islamic school, they'll grow up with the principles and values of Islam. If I did, if I put them in the public system, they probably wouldn't. Some parents put their kids in the public school because, um, you know, the public school was, it's not all negative. I mean, the public school was welcoming. Um, you know, they cared about the kids and, you know, public schools gave a more holistic, they adopted a more holistic approach um, to teaching. So they take into account, you know, social, um, emotional and um, academic aspects of learning it's not always just about academic like in the that, that, like we see in the private system yep. um so some parents were happy with that it's like a holistic approach to learn to teaching and learning so some parents put their kids um for those reasons some parents um i had i had one parent tell me that as soon as her daughter wore a scarf in the private uh, in the public school she felt like she was different and while her teacher was very supportive Really, um, she didn't feel comfortable in the school, so she moved her from a public school to a private school. So the reason I looked at that was just to, so I looked at that idea of class. You know, the, the wealthier parents can afford to move their kids from a public school to a, a private school, but not all parents have that idea of choice. And you kind of, you know, under this policy of privatization, you kind of like, I know choice, it can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. If you want to have a just society, Really, you need to address these issues rather than just take your child out of that school, if that makes sense. We have these girls going to school, young girls, you know, in primary school, not feeling comfortable at school. Yep, it's, the easiest solution is, and I think most people will do this, just move your child just and put them in a school. school. Yeah. yeah, but I think if we want to address the root cause, um, we really need to address this issue in the public system as well if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's what I looked at with the parents. I kind of like, like I said, I wanted to adopt a societal approach to kind of understand how we can fix these issues in our society rather than just, um, you know, take the easy way out. If that makes sense. Yeah. And once you address the root cause, um, everything after that will become easier. 
Yeah, so with the kids, with the students, um, I did focus groups. I talked to the students about their relationship with their teachers, if they enjoyed schooling, what they liked about the school, what they didn't like. So the students I interviewed were young. um, They were in primary school. And the reason I chose primary school, not high school, was because all the studies that have looked at this idea of Islamophobia and schooling look at high school. I thought, well, let's see if this is happening earlier on. And if it is, then we'll address it earlier on um, rather than wait until the kids are in high school. So those things I talked about before, about those policies, about the de-radicalization and the countering violent extremism, they're mainly targeted to high schools. So we didn't see a lot of examples of them happening in the in the primary schools yet. So I talked to the students about, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like. Most of them, uh, they were in stage three, so they were in year five and six. I, t- uh, I did focus groups with boys and girls. Um, so we're in groups of four or five, and we just talked about those things. So a lot of them had not experienced Islamophobia in schools. Really, the experiences of Islamophobia were outside of school. So some, you know, some of the girls talked about how, you know, when they play Saturday soccer, they had experienced Islamophobia. Um, you know, when they go to the shop, the, the shops with their parents, you know, when they're in the car and there's road rage, you know, religion is always brought up. Yep. So those were, the, those were the things they talked about. In school, not so much. But what I found interesting was um, that what these students did, even though they were so young, was they kind of resisted those discourses through their school. So the teachers reproduced these discourses through those practices that I've talked about before. But um, the students resisted them. So what they did was... Um, they always turn to their religion as a form of strength. So they would say, um, you know, this happened to me when I was in Kmart with my mom. But, you know, I always remember what the Prophet says, you know, this is how you need to behave. You always need to be the better person. So they turn to their religion as a form of strength. But they also um, turn to like a global Muslim ummah as a form of solidarity, you know, with each other to challenge those discourses that tell them that, you know, they're, they're violent or they're terrorist or, you know, all those really, those negative discourses in the wider society. Yeah. So, so that's what the kids talked about. It really, the kids were very resilient and they just challenged these wider ideas, these negative ideas about them. That was generally due to their faith. And it was, yeah, I think their faith was central to that. And, you know, I interviewed students um, who were not very faithful. Well, you know, they don't look like they come from very faithful families. Um, Some did, some didn't. But at the end, they all turned to that. You know, they they always said, I'm Muslim, so this is how I need to be. This is how I need to act. I always need to be the better person. And that that was their way as young people to counter these um this negative ideology that um is that targets them so if we take a, a quick look at the perpetrators of islamophobia you mentioned that it generally comes due to the policies that have been put in place what is um the influence of their moral compass um so you mean like those uh, de-radicalization policies and the yeah. countering violent extremism policies so what is the sorry say that again so how is their moral compass influenced by those policies? So teachers, for example. So, um, look, the thing that I found was they all had good intentions. They weren't, so when the teacher said, I want, you know, the student to learn swimming and to learn, um, you know, sports like we Australians do, it wasn't, they didn't see it as a negative thing. What they were trying to do was, they were trying to kind of, you know, enhance, they saw it as that they're helping these kids. 
but the way so they didn't have i wouldn't say it was a negative moral compass um they, they always had good intentions um you know some teachers said well i've come to the shire i've come from the shire i live in the shire but i've come here to this school you know in southwest sydney in this disadvantaged area because i wanted to help these kids so it was always like with a positive mindset they've come here to help these kids but really they weren't seeing that you really need to acknowledge these kids for what they are not try to change them into something different and not always assume that, you know, these kids don't know how to swim or that these kids don't play sport because, you know, you know, you know, our community, they're all involved in these very things. Very active, yeah. They are very active and they're all involved. So the moral compass, I would say, was positive, but um, it's just that idea of that hierarchy. You know, my culture is superior to your culture and I need you to adopt these traits if that makes sense. They don't don't really see that idea of how they see their culture as superior, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's, that's how I interpret it. Um, but yeah, I I think, I think they were positive. I mean, they thought they were doing something good for the kids and you know, they probably were, but like I said, you really need to acknowledge these kids for what they are and not try to, you know, move like a, you know, so I think a lot of the challenges also I found in that school was that it was a, they thought they were trying to, it was a working class school, but they were trying to make it a middle class school to really work in our community. You need to, yeah, just, um, I think I'm being a bit repetitive, but yeah, just, um, see who they are and work with that. And that way you can, um, later, you know, go through upward trends of social mobility, if that makes sense. Definitely. So what are some of the social impacts on the children and the educational impacts on the children of Islamophobia and the furthermore, the impact on their families. Um, so in terms of the social impact, um, so like I said, a lot of the kids were resilient. Um, so some examples were, so some kids will say to me, miss, we were in the city and, um, my grandma was with us and she was wearing, she was covered all in black. And then people would start staring at us. And then after that, I didn't want to go out for a long time, but then I, you know, eventually I got over it. And like I said, they always turned to their faith and said, um, uh, I just need to ignore this. I know that Muslims are not like the way they say they are. Um, so that was, you know, that was an example of the social impact. They kind of isolate for a while, but then they overcome that. Also, because they were young, I think a lot of the children talked about um, things. They didn't realize that they were experiences of racialization, but they were. So I think a lot of students were kind of um, oblivious um, to these wider things. So in terms of their educational outcomes, uh, so this is a bit ironic because um, so they're seen as challenging students in schools. Um, generally, if you want to say, so there are um, Arab, Arab background Muslim students and then there, were, there are Muslim students from other um, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So we find some of those Muslim students from other um, backgrounds are very high educational achievers, whereas the Arab kids are probably below. So the thing is that, so ever since the 1980s, that's when we saw large migration of Muslims and Lebanese to Australia. And they came at a difficult time to Australia. So a lot of the Lebanese, you know, came from the civil war. And at the same time, Australia was going through a recession at the time. So it was really hard for them at the time to integrate. And I think a lot of people came with that mindset that we're here for a few years. And then when everything is fine, we're going to go go back. So aligned with with this issue, 
there were all these negative discourses about Muslims and about, um, you know, they're not integrating, they're not ad- adopting the practices of their host society, et cetera, et cetera. So because they had those challenges integrating when they first came, you know, structural factors that kind of um, impacted their integration, it kind of just reproduced itself. So we see some parts of the Lebanese Muslim community or the Arabic Muslim community, they still are living the ramifications of those challenges that they faced when they first came. So like I said before, you know, that idea of um, social reproduction of human cultural economic capital, some students are still living the ramifications of that. Others have no, we've seen an upward trend in their, you know, educational outcomes. And, you know, for families, we've seen upward trends of, um, you know, their socioeconomic status. But the thing is, when you want to look at Muslims, not just look at students um, in the Australian case. Um, So in Australia, uh, if you look at the statistics, you'll find that the, in comparison with the Australian population, the Muslim population you know, have higher postgraduate qualifications, but it does not translate into workforce participation, if that makes sense. So if you look at, um, you know, the Muslim community, the statistics on the Muslim community, a lot of us have, um, you know, uh, finished university, a lot of us have worked, et cetera, but a lot of the statistics also are not aligned with the workforce participation, if that makes sense. So why is that? Why? Well, my understanding is that because we live in an Islamophobic uh, state, not just Australia, across the West. Um, and, you know, like there's a lot of research on this. This is, I'm not speaking from my mind. You know, when, when someone, you know, gets a resume with an Arabic name or a Muslim name and you have a resume with, um, you know, an Anglo name with the same experience and qualifications, you know who they're going to give preference to. Definitely. Yeah. I think that that's a problem. The problem is that, well, it's, it's, it's a bit complex and, um, well, there are these wider structural factors that we always need to consider and not like, you know, say this is the problem of the individual. So I'm going to ask a question that might challenge your beliefs or your research. Um, and you can choose to answer it or not. But do you think Muslims contribute to Islamophobia or contribute Uh, (laughs) to the narrative contribute to the narrative um good question you know you know what this is something that we always talk about you say you know in our community we're always talking about this we say well you know i don't blame them for seeing us this way because really look at us if that makes sense um that's exactly why i'm asking the question to be honest (laughs) um look i think i think it's 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 a complicated question i think there are there are structural factors that influence that impact the way that we are. Like I said, ever since, you know, Muslims came to Australia or the Lebanese Arab Muslims came to Australia, we've always had these negative discourses about us. But I think um, at the individual level, I think each community has its strengths and I don't think any community is better than the other. Yeah. I think I'm I'm not, I don't know if I can answer your question really. I think, I just think we really need to appreciate the Muslim community for what it is. And I feel like there's always this idea of a hierarchy. We even believe this, that if you come from, you know, uh, an Anglo culture that you're seen as more civilized and superior, I think every single culture has something unique to it, you know, and we need to acknowledge that and other cultures need to acknowledge that. And we all need to look at each other on an equal level rather than say, you know, the um, Anglo culture or, you know, European whiteness 
you know, going back to the history of yep. Australia, is superior to Islamic culture. And you know what's funny? Um, you know, I always I think about this, that in the West we have this idea that the West is, you know, civilised in comparison with other cultures. And, yep. you know, it is to a certain extent. But really the West became civilised in that period of modernity. Before we had that period of modernity, Islam was going through the golden ages, you know, say from, I think about from the eighth to the 14th century was the Islamic golden age. At that time, Europe was going through, you know, the the great depression and they had a whole heap of issues while we were, you know, pioneers in the maths and the sciences, you know, before European modernity, before that period of enlightenment, if that makes sense. So really we need to acknowledge what we are, and not see ourselves as inferior to any other culture. We need to acknowledge the uniqueness of our culture and really acknowledge the contributions we have made to civilization before the Europeans did. And uh, <laughs> just to finish off, um, it seems like your PhD took a lot of time, a lot of work, because you mentioned there was not a lot of literature to go off. Would you recommend Arab Muslims pursuing PhDs? Yep, I would. Um, I always think... I always, I would encourage anybody to do a PhD in whatever field it was, but really what opened up my mind was um, studying sociology. I would encourage everybody to study sociology, especially if you can do a PhD in it, because, um, you know, I had a master's before I did this. I had a teaching degree before I did my PhD, but really what opened up my mind was doing a PhD in sociology because it really look, um, lets you look at these social structures of power. It really um, lets you understand, you know, the political organization of knowledge. Once we understand this, once, you know, the Muslims understand this, it gives us an appreciation for our own beliefs and literature and um, knowledge as well. You know, so once I understand, once I understood how knowledge is formed um, in the West, it kind of gave me an appreciation of Islamic knowledge and, you know, our epistemologies and how we understand things in comparison, you know, with Western views towards things. So it really opens up your mind. And that's why I, I would encourage anybody to do it. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, doctor. Okay. Really appreciated the chat. Okay. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcast where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.